Welcome to 2019. Anybody written 2018 on your checks this year? No? 2018, 2017. Don't use checks. You've stopped already. Yeah, good call. Yeah, um, it is 2019. I've not written it wrong, but I've said it wrong a couple of times. I think I, the truth is, I think I stopped progressing at about 2008. And so that's oftentimes I'm like a decade behind. Anybody lose power last night? Wow. I mean, I heard the wind going, but I did not lose power. And I drove here and I saw the trees down and I saw stoplights out. And then I started getting calls. Are we having church today? And I was like, it is Sunday, right? Because you, you ever go through those holidays and lose track of what day of the week it is? I went from basically Christmas Eve day until like the third, not knowing what day of the week it was. Anybody else struggle with that? Okay. And so then I was like, yes. <laughs> That's how I responded to the first text. And then I got five phone calls about whether or not we were, whether we had power or whether we were having church. And so I was like, wow. Let me give you a little hint about me. I don't cancel. I may be gone on vacation, but if I'm not, I can have the plague and I will drag myself here. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying I have this something about me that says I have to be here. And uh, two years ago, some of you may remember, we got six inches of snow. Okay, so Sunday fell on the first and we had six inches of snow. It's the only time I've had less people than this in this room. Do you remember that, James? We were out here shoveling. We, I didn't know because at my house I had like a little bit of snow. But somehow between Des Moines and here, I went from just like, oh, no big deal. I actually thought, should I wear my boots? Nah, I'll just be able to sweep it off. So I wore shoes, and we were out there shoveling. And um, that day, I think it was James and I and about 20 of our closest friends. I asked, It's the only time I've ever said, normally I don't care. People sit in, but I was like, could you guys at least move to the middle section? Because otherwise... <laughs> But today, you, you, my friends, are the chosen. You got up and made it. Good job. Way to go. Give yourselves a hand. I would give you a gold star, but Tracy already got that. So I think sometimes in our lives, um, and it's funny, some series that I preach, I'm like, the people that are here probably don't need to hear it. It's the ones who aren't here that need to. So those of you who are here who don't need to hear this, just put it in your memory bank for someday when you do. All right? But I'm starting a series on expectations. New year, new me. Let me tell you why I hate that saying. I hate that saying for this reason. First off, the new year is an arbitrary date that we picked. There's no actual significance. If you were really going to pick something, it should have been on a solstice or something. But we just picked an arbitrary date. But that's not the biggest reason it bugs me. The biggest reason it bothers me is that's making the assumption that the old you is not good enough. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, we'll never be good enough, but you're accepted, you're chosen, you're wanted, you're loved, you're drawn in, you're called. All of those things are true. Now, could we afford to lose a few pounds? Some of us, me, I have a few I could lose. I gained a little weight over the Christmas holidays. I'd lost a bunch before Thanksgiving, though, just to give myself the buffer. I don't know if any of you plan that way, but I went on a diet the first week of September. I lost the weight to give myself the buffer, and now I just have to lose a couple more pounds that I picked up again. Some of you think I'm kidding. I am 100% serious when I say that. I lose weight every year starting in September knowing I'm going to gain weight in November and December. 
There's things about us that we'd like to see improved and made better. But the truth is, God created you. And he looks at you, and he wants you, and he loves you just the way you are. And there's things about you that he desires to change, but it's not because you're not good enough. Because if we're trying to be good enough, we'll never be good enough. But he wants them to change because he wants the absolute best for you. He wants the best for you. So the new you, new me, is about what can I change on the outside? What will people notice? But what he's looking at is your heart and saying, what can we shape and mold to be more in the image of who I am and who I created you to be? Too oftentimes we say, well, that's just the way I am. I have this bad habit, but that's, it's generational. I do this, I don't like it, but that's what I am. That's what I do. It was the family I was raised in. And I look and I go, then you're denying the very power of what the cross says he can do. See, when we walk in with an expectation that God is going to do something, he meets us right where we are. When you walk in expecting God to change and to mold you, not because you're bad, but because he sees what you can be, then we suddenly are open to what he has for us. If you want to grab your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. Some of you know this story because it's what... uh, Our good friend Linus reads the beginning of and the end of the Christmas story. I read it one year at youth group and some kid raised his head and said, hey, that's the poem Linus read. I was like, yes, yes, it is the poem that Linus read. Good job. But I also love the fact that I had kids in my youth group who had never been in church before in their lives and somehow would show up and engage, even if that was their only connection. Starting in verse 22. Now the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. I want to stop right there. This is Jesus they're presenting. And I find it so ironic, whether you realize the symbolism here or not, the one who's going, to very, who's going to take away the very idea that you have to sacrifice something, his parents go and they offer the appropriate sacrifice. It's this juxtaposition of even Mary, despite a visitation from an angel, and Joseph, a visitation from an angel, didn't understand who this child was in their midst. When we see people come in and they don't know Jesus or they don't understand why we do things we do, They're in good company. It's the same thing I say when you go, that person was a Christian for years. How did they mess up so bad? Look at the disciples. Because we're all broken people living in a broken world. And we don't even realize that when we've walked with Jesus for years, we don't even realize who he is or what he wants to do in us. So his parents offer the sacrifice, as was according to the law, the very law which Jesus came to say, you're not under this anymore. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The consolation of Israel means the promise that Israel was given. He's waiting for the completion of this promise. That's what that's saying. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus for him to, for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace 
according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Let me uh, let you know, at the moment of Jesus' dedication, we see foreshadowing. Again, I've talked oftentimes when we do communion that the biggest most impacting part about communion for me is the fact that it was part of a ritual and part of a meal and Jesus breaks script. There were certain things that were supposed to be said in a certain order and that's how communion, the, that's how that worked. That's how the Passover works. You can buy a book that literally tells you the lines that you're supposed to say and the story you're supposed to give still to this day. And Jesus breaks script and says, this is my body, this is my blood. And all of a sudden, now he's got the disciples' attention because they know the story and now they're like, oh, now we're getting something new. Now this is getting good. And the same thing happens. When a child is brought to be dedicated in the temple, there's a script that the priest would read. And he would read this, and they would dedicate the child, and they would do this, and this is the way it's been since the time of Moses. Since the priesthood was set up, we've got this ritual, you're going to make this sacrifice, I'm going to read these words, you're going to say that this child was dedicated to God, and we move forward. And suddenly, it's all flipped, because Simeon looks and he says... I can go home happy. I can die happy because I've seen the face of the Lord. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of all your people Israel. Something different about this child from the very beginning. I know that there are people who don't believe in God. Okay? We have different belief systems. I know that there are people who are anti-God. Okay, different belief systems. But sometimes people say, Jesus never existed. And then I go, okay, wait, now you're an idiot. Because that's like saying, I wasn't here when George Washington was president. Certainly he couldn't have existed. Because since I wasn't born until 1971, nothing could have existed before 1971. That's what it is when people say Jesus never existed. We have historical proof. We have biblical proof. We have writings outside the Bible by Josephus, who was the national historian for the nation of Israel, who writes about this guy who causes riots and has followings. He doesn't write about him as the Messiah. He's writing from a historical perspective saying, you should get a load of this guy. People keep coming out to see him. He's causing riots in the streets. There's different times. There are people who really just want to see that. And they'll read the texts of Josephus because here's a guy. The only reason his writings still exist to this day, 2,000 years later, his historical writings, is because he wrote about Jesus. And people are like, well, I want to see it from a non-biblical point of view. So, He sees this Christ, he sees this child, he recognizes the Christ, and he says, this is the one I've been waiting for. This is the one, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at these things which were spoken of him, because again, they know the script, they've been to other baby dedications, they've seen it happen, it's the same way it's happened since the time of Moses, and now the old guy in the temple is breaking all the rules and going off on his own. And they're not sure if he's crazy or if he really sees something. Because now we've just got an old man who's just starting to ramble. But what he's saying draws them in. And it says, They marveled at the things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through his own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. He's going to see and he's going to know there's something about this child that's different. 
Simeon sees it in an eight-day-old child, and he says, this is the one that's going to change the world. And then when people tell me, oh, I don't believe in this, I'm like, okay, but how do you not? I realize we're reading our own writings and we're reading our own texts, but even those who were historians around, when he becomes an adult, they're like, this guy's doing something different. This guy's shaking things up. This guy is causing problems for our government. Today, I think we come into church too many times, and maybe it's just me, but we come in out of this ritual and habit. Like I said, I don't miss. I don't care if the weather's bad. If I can get here, I'm going to be here. But I don't come expecting always. Sometimes I come just, well, it's Sunday. I better get there. Last Sunday, I went to church, and I had little to no actual expectation. I was just frustrated we were running late. Anybody ever run late to church and get frustrated? Some of you probably... Okay, this is, that's what I feel. I'm like, how can I be late? I come here two hours early. I couldn't convince my family to get up and go at seven and wait till the doors open. I, I'm kidding, I didn't even try. But I was frustrated because we were running late and I don't want to be late and I just want to... And the reality is, I just wanted to get it over with. Last Sunday, I was like, okay, we got to go to church, but let's get this over with so we can be done. And I walked in with no sense of expectation in my heart of what God wanted to do. And I walked through the doors and I heard basically this, a very similar message to this that said, are you expecting? I told Tracy, I got to tell the church this. Because it hit me deep. So I'm writing notes and I rarely ever take notes. Most of the time because I'm preaching, but even when other people are, I don't take notes. And I'm writing notes, and I I do it on my phone, as many of you do. And I'm writing down, jotting down things that I want you guys to hear because I want to walk into church with an expectant heart, not just with an attitude that says, well, I better get there. It's interesting because yesterday, um, for men's breakfast, if you don't normally join us, please, men, consider it. Women, we do a women's breakfast every month. Please consider joining it. It's a great way to build relationships. It's not a great big long sermon, Our speaker yesterday spoke 15 minutes. It was Joe Gomez. And he spoke on two things that I have in my message notes for today. Two that he said. And I was like, wow, I didn't even like coordinate with him ahead of time. But he talked about being in this place as an act of a father and a man, as a husband, leading the spiritual life, not just letting it happen around you. And the second thing he talked about was he comes and he wants to see what God has for him. I use different words. I say, come expectantly. But Joe Joe said, I want to come here to see what God has for me. And I was like, Joe, thank you. You've set us up perfect. Because that's what God wants for us this year. This is a year of expectation. Simeon, I want to break this down. I'm going to come back to the scripture in just a minute. Uh, If you want to mark it, I'll be at verse 36 when I come back. But it says, Simeon, he was devout. Devout means he was committed to God and to his work in the temple. He didn't do it because he had to. Simeon, we picture him basically, the, the writings about him, they put him probably somewhere in his 80s. He's retired, he doesn't have to, but he shows up every day at the temple because you never know what's going to happen. Yes, the temple was the city, the center of their cultural community, not literally the physical center, but of their cultural community. People would come there. People would sit there. People would come and connect with friends and then go about their daily business. They'd stop in the middle of the day to offer a sacrifice and a prayer. And he comes because he's ready to give these sacrifices and he's ready to do whatever needs to be done. He comes because he's devout 
to what he believes. And if you're wondering, the culture had already shifted. They'd been under Roman rule enough that there were many amongst them who were no longer practicing the very rituals that set them apart from the Romans. They had basically said, you know what? We're just going to be, we are part of their culture. We're just going to absorb and adapt into their culture. And so because of that, he comes out and says, we've got to be different and we've got to be set apart and I'm going to keep these rituals alive. Have you ever known the, like the older person who you're like, wow, it seems like they're always here at church. There's a few, you know, Lars, I'm going to call out Lars. Lars, some of you know, Lars is in his 90s. He was part of our church for years. He moved away and so he's no longer here. But it used to be, he would come and every week he would start picking up trash. And I remember we were having a congregational meeting and during the middle of the meeting, he walks down the aisle just picking up trash while we're having the meeting because that's what Lars did. At the end of service, he picks up the trash. And we were like, Lars, could you wait until, oh, and he nods and he wanders back to the back. That is who Simeon is. He just shows up. If it's time to pick up the trash, I'll pick up the trash. He'll do whatever needs to be done because he's going to be there. He's righteous. He led a life that was set apart designed for service. He wants to serve people. He wants to love people. He's spirit-led. says he walked in the spirit, knowing and sensing the move of God. He knows that God's going to do something, and he knows that he's going to see the Redeemer before he dies because he's been promised it, and he believes it. And then suddenly he holds this baby. Now, the sad thing is we don't have any of Simeon's life after this, so that may have been the last day he showed up. He may have gone, whoo, done. <laughs> Made it. Got to see the Christ, which was what I was showing up for, and now I'm done. But he walked in the Spirit, believing for a promise, and he was expectant. He knew that he would see the Christ. He believed that the Messiah was going to appear. He believed the writings of the prophets and knew that the time was close. He was expectant that God was going to do something in his midst. Verse 36 says, Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was, a great, she was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And, the woman, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers day and night. And in coming in that instance, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So there's another older lady named Anna. She's 84. She was married for approximately seven years. She understands tragedy because... Uh, her husband was dead. She's a prophet, so she would foretell the works of God and talk and speak into people's lives. But knowing the culture, knowing their customs, she was probably married somewhere between the age of 12 and 14. That would have been when they typically married. She was married for seven years when her husband died. And then she's 84, and it says she goes to the temple. She basically lives at the temple now. She comes there. She does jobs and tasks. She does what's asked of her. She's there to clean and to serve and to to give, to pray for people. And the thing is, she was a person who's acquainted with grief. She understands what it means to mourn. But she doesn't let her, that steal her of her opportunity to serve. She uses it as, as the opportunity to spend every moment there. She's got nothing else. This is where I'm going to be. She puts her relationship with God above all else. It says she fasts. She prays night and day. What a dedicated person. We see dedication on her part because 
she knows that this is where God wants her to be, and she fulfills that, and she walks through that. She's at the temple because she's expectant of something to happen. She's not there because she has to be. She's there because she wants to see God move. She fasts and she prays because she wants to see God work. And too oftentimes, we come in to do our task and to get out, to fulfill our responsibility, to check it off on a box. But it's not a coming with an expectation of everything that God wants to do in us. Let's contrast that a little bit with the church today. Are we devout? These are the only questions you can answer, but these are the questions I was asking myself. Do I treat church and the gathering as a promise? As a, something that is going to challenge me and motivate me and change me and remove me? Or is it just something that I have to do? Do I show up out of responsibility? Or do I show up because I really want to see God work in me this week? Is it my priority? Is my priority to be here or is my priority somewhere else? And I see people abandon the church. Sometimes they abandon our church. Sometimes they abandon the church as a whole because it doesn't look like what they want. It didn't do what they want. It didn't meet their expectations. I've told you many times, I don't want cult-like devotion. I don't want you devoted to me but I want to see you uncompromisingly devoted to Jesus. And part of that means you have to plug in and connect with the church. Jesus calls the church the bride of Christ. I had a conversation with somebody over the last two days that wrote this piece on why the church, why we should basically get rid of the church. Because it's, it's done this and this and this and it doesn't meet these needs. And I'm like, okay, wait. I'm not saying the church doesn't have problems, but you standing in the parking lot yelling at the building does no good. You throwing stones at the ones who are still following? How how is that helping? You get inside and you see that there's problems and you see that there's issues because we're dealing with a bunch of people who are imperfect and make mistakes and screw up and mess up and are faulted human beings. And yet Jesus is saying, and that's the church that I love. That's the one I came to redeem. That's why I sent him. That's why God sent his son was so that we could be reconnected. And he looks and he says, that church, that group, that's my bride. Don't insult the bride of Jesus. Don't walk up to the bride and go, you're ugly and you're not very good at things. Let's look at the bride and say, it's flawed and it's imperfect. But man, what a beautiful bride it is. And when we strive to help make it better, when that's our goal and that's our, what we do, then we begin to have that true devoutness, that true devotion to something greater than us. Our, is the church righteous today? Are we living different than the world? See, a lot of times I ask myself, what does that look like in my world circumstance today? One of the things I often tell people the greatest thing that the church could do is we could just, if we just weren't quite such big jerks sometimes, maybe if we were just a little bit less of a jerk, the world would see us as somebody who really does care. Are we spirit-led? Is our passion for word and prayer? Again, I don't want to get into legalism and say, all of you need to show up here on Thursday night for prayer. What I want to say is, all of us should have a desire within us to be in prayer. See the difference? Do I want you to come out? We offer prayer 
pre-service every Sunday, we have 30 minutes of prayer. We have Thursday night prayer where we pray for each other and we pray for our city, our church, any requests to come in. There's a Tuesday women's prayer group. I don't even go to that one. I don't even try. (laughs) But we offer these times not because I want to tie up every moment of every day. We offer these because I value and believe that we should be coming together for prayer. And maybe you can't. Maybe your job doesn't allow that. I understand that. But are you spending time in prayer where you're at? At your home? On your commute? As you drive? You don't have to close your eyes when you're driving and praying. But (laughs) please don't. Are we passionate about the Word? Is the Word something that I try to get into my life? Are we more interested in what God desires or what our own personal goal is to get out of this? Because sometimes we can even do things in the name of Jesus that are really just what we want out of it. And that's a dangerous thing because you will never be God. We strive to be like him, but you will never be God. And finally, are we, as the church, are we dedicated? Again, not blind loyalty, not a cult-like following, but there's always something shinier and prettier out there. Are we committed and dedicated to where God has us? I'm not saying you'll never leave a church. What I'm saying is stop leaving because you don't like the color of the walls, the color of the paint, or the way the pastor says something. Make relationships more important than the superficial, well, the music's too loud, the music's too soft. You guys never raise your hands in worship. Everybody's too charismatic. I've told you before, I hear the same comments in a single week. Too much and not enough. You know why? Because it's not designed for you specifically to be your worship experience. It's designed to be a corporate time together. And are we the perfect church in town? Nope, doesn't exist. But are we committed as a body of believers to knowing Jesus more, to worshiping him, to praying to connecting with our community, to engaging with the lost, to creating a safe place where people can come in, and if they want to remain anonymous, yes, but if they're looking for purpose and belonging, provide that? Absolutely. That's what we strive to do. Have we perfected it yet? No, and we never will, because as soon as we begin to get the formula down, society changes and people change, and if we stick with our formula, we're going to miss what's happening around us. And so we're constantly changing and we're constantly growing and we're constantly evolving and we're constantly shifting and my message stays the same, but my methods will continue to change. My message is this. Jesus Christ came. He died for you. He raised from the dead so that you could connect with God. And too oftentimes we're looking at the church for all these other things and we have all these other unrealistic expectations and it doesn't make me happy and it doesn't make me walk out humming and singing, and it doesn't make me do these things. And these are our own expectations, not the reality of what God is saying. And we use sinners to lead worship, and we use sinners to preach, and we let sinners collect the offering, and we let sinners do all these things. And why would I want to be a part of that? Because God looks, and Jesus said, this is my bride, and it's beautiful, and it's imperfect, but it's beautiful. I desire for us to have a commitment to something greater than self. And the rest of the world is telling you, make yourself happy. 2019, make this a truly happy year, happy for you. I literally saw somebody put that on social media. And I was like, it's so empty. It's vain and it's empty. 
And I didn't say that to them because I don't need to be in an argument on social media. But it's vain and it's empty because my happiness has nothing to do with whether or not God is going to do something in my life. Some of the hardest times in my life was when God was really dealing with stuff in me because it's hard and it's painful and we don't want to change. We don't. We like the way we are. If we didn't, we probably wouldn't be that way so much. When I was in counseling, one of the things my counselor said is, a lot of your actions at one point in your life made sense because it was a defense mechanism. It's how you survived. It's how you lived. You know, it's what you do as a four-year-old versus what you do as a 40-year-old. Those things should be different. But he said a lot of times the places you get stuck is you learned a path that worked for you when you were a child or a teen and you're still doing the same thing today and it doesn't work anymore because you're changed, society's changed, the world has changed. People don't want to grow. Growth stinks, it's painful, it's hard. And yet at the same time, if we're going to really be dedicated to who God is, we have to grow. And we have to change the way we did things and the way we want to do things. We have to have a commitment to something greater than ourselves. A commitment that requires something of me. And I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm not here to ask you for money. I'm not here to say, hey, you should be doing this. I'm just saying, if I'm simply a consumer, and that's all I view this as, or if I'm simply here out of obligation, I'm never going to see any deep and meaningful substantive change in me, and I'm always going to feel like the church is failing because I don't want to do, and I don't want to mold, and I don't want to adapt, and I don't want to change, so the church must be failing me. I know people that leave church because they went from hymns to not doing hymns. I know people that left churches over colors of carpet and decor. I know people that left churches because it doesn't make them happy. And all those things I look and I go, none of those are substantive reasons. One church we were at, there were all these old pictures on the wall and we were going to paint the lobby. And there were pictures of old pastors back to the very, and we took down all the pictures and we painted the walls. And it wasn't that we weren't going to put the pictures back up, but we weren't big on celebrating who our history of pastors was. And somebody got really upset and said, you're stealing my history. That's like walking into my living room and stealing something off my walls. And I was the youth pastor, and the pastor just looked and said, this isn't your living room. This is the house of the Lord, and this is supposed to be a place where we bring and include, not where we sit and look at what once was. I don't know that we even would know, but he did say, do you want those pictures? I'll give you the whole box of them. You can have them. You can put them up in your living room. Let's not believe that this is our place and that things have to be the way we want in order for us to go here. Let's believe that God has a plan and purpose bigger than that, and let's be committed and dedicated to the call that he has on our life. Let's walk in here with an expectation. What does expectation look like in your context in 2019? I don't know. But walk in here with a heart that's expectant. If you don't know how to do that, first thing I would tell you, start showing up for pre-service prayer. 9.15, pray for 30 minutes and literally just ask God, God, what do you want me to get out of this service today? You don't even have to pray out loud. You can just sit in there and pray that. How do I live my life with expectation? 
Not just on Sunday mornings, but how do I live my life with expectation? And what has to change about me to really walk that out? So now that I live my life with expectation, what do I have to change in order to live that out? What do I have to sacrifice or give? Because as David said, I won't give a sacrifice to my God that costs me nothing. It's supposed to cost you something. It's supposed to challenge you and change you. Because those challenges and changes are what make us more in the line and the image of who God created us to be, which is more and more and more like him. So let's be those people. Let's let 2019 be the year of expectation where I expect God. I expect God to move in me, to move me, to change me, to make me more like him. Because that's what we need. When your faith feels empty and the church feels meaningless, it's because we no longer walk in with an expectation. We walk in with a preconceived notion and that preconceived notion proves itself true because we already have decided it. Let's walk in with an expectation that says God's going to do something. He's going to do something in me. God, I thank you for gathering place and I thank you for the congregation that calls this their church home. God, may we be a people who are expectant of what you want, who put our hope in you, who know that you're going to challenge and change us. And it's not about ritual or tradition. It's not about legalism that says I have to be here every time the doors are open. But Father God, it's something within me that says I want to be there because I know that you're going to be there and you're going to do something. God, that that would be our heart, that that would be our passion, that that would be our vision and our mission. I thank you and praise you for that in your name. Amen. Again, two things. You'll hear it every week of January, but fill out this card. You only have to do it once this year, but if you don't do it, we really won't put you in because I will not be presumptuous enough to say, oh, this person wants to be in. No, if you don't fill it out, I won't put you in because I don't want to put somebody in that says, I don't want that out there. Um, second off, somebody already said, hey, we might be moving or whatever. Um, just don't put an address then. You know, just put name and email or phone number. Put a way that people in the church can contact you if they need to. We don't make this public. We don't publish it online. I literally will pass them out for about two or three weeks, and then we don't even leave them in the information desk. We keep them in the office because I do value your privacy. I value your right to privacy. But at the same time, people want to know how to reach you if you're leading something, doing something, or a part of something. So please consider doing that so that we are up to date on what we have going on within. You can drop them... We have an information, right next to the information booth in the lobby is a place where you can drop your offering in if, if you ever prefer to do it that way. You can drop that 